Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another episode in progress of the Infinite Jest Book Club and Fellowship. Thank you so much, Liz, for popping in. Uh, thankfully, you didn't have to find a shirt or whatever the hell's going on over there, but uh, we'll catch up some other time. Uh, ciao or Danka or whatever. Um, and welcome again in progress, everyone. We were talking about the Stitt and Mario chapter. That's where we're picking up. And uh, Jack kind of kicked us off here. Um, if you'd like to repeat your point or question there, Jack, I think it was a great one, a great place to start. Yeah. In this section of the book, uh, I've always been really interested in the extra linear dynamics part. And Stitt is definitely a character that I don't think I've got all the way figured out. I really agree with you about uh, Stitt and Mario and the way that they uh, kind of refract off of each other. I, I obviously think that's a part of what the, the book does with lots of characters, but they're a really fun pairing and probably a pairing that I don't think I've gotten, I've got to the bottom of. The extra linear dynamics thing, one other part, since we're we're with some rereaders, for a spoiler mm -hmm. alert, um, Stitt and, and the man himself's time and their crossing paths. It, it says that, uh, you know, Jim would have been all over ELD, kind of indicating that he missed Stitt. Did they not have any crossover? Is that everybody's understanding? I, I, they certainly, do you mean that they weren't there at the same time? Yeah, because I thought that Jim had hired Stitt. Was I wrong there? No, I think you're right. I he, don't think so. yeah. yeah. He at least okay. very badly wanted Stitt there. So. Okay. Yeah, so, so that, that makes sense. The part that was weird to me was that, you know, they wouldn't have crossed paths. That was what stuck out to me as strange. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. Anybody um, anybody have any ideas or any feedback there? The only thing I can think of, and this was after just hearing, I read a couple of his essays where he talks about tennis, uh, where TFW talks about tennis and his own like time playing as he, you know, as a youth and everything. And one of his things was like, I wasn't that athletic, but I knew how to like use the math and the geometry of the court uh, to like best my opponents. Um, and I saw a lot of crossover from some of his previous essays on tennis um in this chapter and I, that that's kind of like what i was thinking when i saw that yeah and I, I see here the point about not crunching serious stats is that Stitt had clued in condensa in all the way back at a bs 1989 usta convention on photoelectric line judging that he, Stitt, knew real tennis was really about not the blend of statistical order and expansive potential, but in fact, the opposite, not order, limit, 
the places where things broke down fragmented into beauty. That real tennis was no more reducible to delimited factors or probability curves than chess or boxing, the two games of which it's a hybrid. Um, so yeah, that's, I, it does look like they met, certainly, um, although probably their uh, tenures at ETA may not have overlapped. Yeah, that's uh, that's a little I bit think. how I'm taking it, and maybe also that like Jim was really out of it then. I think if you read the footnotes, it says like um, that uh, ELD is it says it's still green, so I think it's sort of implying that the like as a you know theory or whatever it wasn't as fleshed out before himself died. So I think that's what it's saying. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, ELD, that still green shoot off the pure branch of math that deals with systems and phenomena whose chaos is beyond Mandelbrotian math, strange equations and random attractants. Um, now I would be, um, a little bit interested to, oh, fuck, I'm sitting in front of the computer. I'll look it up. When did line challenges start in tennis um, because now I know that um, I don't okay March 2006 uh, so well after infinite jest I, I don't know how many sports fans we have here but in tennis now much like football and every other sport the player can challenge I believe it's up to like two calls a game so if you're sitting there and the, the umps out on the serve and you look, fuck, man, I thought that was close. You can challenge it. And it's funny because on TV they do like um, it's like it, it, it's like a graphic reenactment where they show the ball and doink and where it is on the line. Um, so that was 2006 that that came about. It seems to me that it is at least being hinted at here um, in terms of how the technology can be used, um, you know, whether it's extra linear dynamics or intra linear dynamics. Um, I think what's interesting, Jack, and um, when you talk about these things, do you remember what Mario's retort was about, you know, shtick kind of says, fuck the lines. Why, why are you worried about the lines? They're, they're, they're just kind of there, they're guidelines, but don't let them limit you. Lines show you possibilities, not limits. And do you remember what Mario says? Except why do you let Delint tie Pemulus and Shaw's shoes to the lines if the lines aren't boundaries? Which is just awesome because I'm sure I'm not the only one who loves to put myself there when when someone's having a really you know, you know, really kind of full of themselves and not in a bad way. I get full of myself all the time when I think, wow, that's fucking brilliant. I better say it before I forget it. And then someone will be like, well, Jamie, that's interesting. But what about this very obvious contradiction? 
Um, Mark Twain said, there's nothing quite as annoying as a good example. Um, and I, I think that this is a, a great example of that. Um, because how the fuck do you get mad at Mario? You know, if I'm sitting here saying, look, this is the way that gravity works and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and so, well, that's interesting. But what about this? Because it actually defies everything you just said that I agree with. Um, so I thought that was a very funny line. Um, and Shtit apparently didn't see the humor. Because uh, he just, without there is something bigger. Nothing to contain and give the meaning. Lonely. Verstegenheit. And of course, Mario says, bless you. Any something. The what? This is more important than that there is something. Um, so in terms of a non sequitur, that is about as obtuse as it gets. But I think it's interesting. The what? There is more. This is more unimportant than that there is something. Um, I don't know what the fuck that means, but I like the way those words sound in that order. Um, the what? This is more unimportant than that there is something. Um, what this part sort of reminded me of was, I think what a lot of people, I think even people here were introduced um, to David Foster Laws from his commencement speech. Um, but there's the part where he says, we all worship. And he says, you know, he rattles off the, you know, different religions and things. And he says, it doesn't really matter as long as there's something. So that, yeah. this section, I was sort of seeing shades of that throughout this that is a great point sasha and i think that this whole section that we're going to cover today i think is very very um reminiscent of this is water uh because that's a big part of marat and steeply right uh what if you what if you don't choose to love what what if the temple comes to muhammad um but yes, I think that uh, that is a really, really good point. Um, and so they're going to get ice cream. Um, and there's another great Mario line here um, where he asks him, so Stitt says all life is the same as citizens of the human state. The animating limits are within to be killed and mourned over and over again. And Mario says, and I'm, I'll find it, but he says, do you think, is that like saying life is pro-death? Um, and do you remember the Hal and Mario conversation? where Hal says why he doesn't, he's not really keen on God. Because mm. God seems pro-death. Mm. Um, so I think that that is interesting and certainly indicative of Mario 
being able to listen, comprehend, and ruminate, right? Because this is a, a, a middle of the night conversation that didn't just die there with Mario. He's thinking about it. Um, so the people make fun of Mario. He couldn't give two fucks. Um, and then, but so what's the difference between tennis and suicide, life and death, the game and its own end? And so no different, maybe. Hmm. Maybe no different. So, uh, biting hard, not different. Uh, looking out, except the chance to play. Um, so, what is the difference? What's the difference between tennis and suicide, life and death, the game and its own end? None. The only difference is getting the chance to play. Uh, which is a really interesting way to make, you know, one of life's heavier questions an almost throwaway line about tennis, right? Like, like y you must have believed, Hal. You kicked that guy's ass today. You are so good at tennis, you must believe in God. Um, and here Stitt is saying the difference between tennis and suicide, life and death might not be anything except that you get the chance to play. Um, and then they laugh all the way out. Okay. So, um, yeah, Jack, I think, I think you were kind of on it with the the extra linear dimension um anything else here in this chapter other than really a little bit more introduction i like the the part about like uh you know you get the chance to play and all that kind of ties back into when uh the doctor was in Kate Gompert's room, remember? And she was like, mm. yeah, she just didn't want to play anymore. She's like, you know, I yeah. Know. I know I had to have highlighted that. It's one of my favorite parts. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to hurt my, I didn't want to especially hurt myself or like punish. I don't hate myself. I just wanted out. I, I didn't want to play anymore, is all. Yeah. And they reference that over and over. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's it's so sorry i i was just thinking yeah i was yeah that line i have that underlined too that part where it says except the chance to play like in, it's so intense to hear mm -hmm. these thoughts and feelings about this character who is so minor in a way it made me angry that he didn't give us more or he didn't give me more of him like i wanted really to know this character more because the, the things that he's saying here comparing tennis to life and suicide and it's so sad and so again so intense and powerful but there is no more we don't really or at least I don't remember but I think we don't really get to know more about this this character did except mm -hmm. 
I didn't really care so much for him at the first reading. For me, Sid was this strict guy. Many kids were afraid of him. He was, he was, um, he was, he was making their lives. He could make their lives really miserable. And the story of the writing crop for me that was so I tried to just ignore that. Ah, oh, this guy shit. He's not doing it for me. But then the second, third, and this time reading these lines, it it makes him so. It, and it's so sad. These ideas that what he's saying here is so sad. Yeah, what doesn't he say he has sad blue eyes? Um, if a whiff of yeah, I, I thought that was how he described them, but I could be wrong. Um, in any case, we'll get there. But I, I thought he did say sad blue eyes. But yeah, yeah, you're right. There's a lot. There, there's there's a lot going on under the under the water level here right mm, mm, right um you know and neither shit nor mario are the type that have to say everything that they think mm. um you know it even says here that shit is running shit over in his head because he thinks he's on a bit of a roll Mario says, Mario thinks hard again. He's trying to think of how to articulate something like blah, blah, blah. Now, is this the section where it says, you know, this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be brought out in narrative, but Mario has less than perfect recall? Maybe it's not, but I thought that was interesting and I'll think we'll get there. Um, so moving on, Tiny Yule. There is no jolly irony in Tiny Yule's name. He's tiny, an elf-sized U.S. male. His feet barely reach the floor of the taxi. All right, so yeah, Tiny is in the taxi right headed to uh Ennett house right mm -hmm. right um so there's a staffer in there um now i was a little bit confused here because so in the narrative we're in the taxi blah 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 um and then now i do love the part about his shoes that gleam nicely except for a one big incongruous scuff mark of white from where he would kicked at his front door when he'd returned home just before dawn from an extremely important get together with potential clients to find that his wife had had the locks changed um which if if anybody has had any adventures with alcohol um this is probably not terribly uncommon right, right. like they like got very very important work meeting that is to take place at 4 30 p.m that went so well that when you got home at 5 30 a.m the fucking door was locked because your <laughs> wife doesn't understand how hard you're working um so 
Yes, I thought yeah, that. Yeah, it's probably not the first time. That's why she did it, I think. I it's would say not. you're exactly right. Um, but I would also say that the way that it's communicated here through the narrative, um, he is still in denial, right? Like, he doesn't describe it as, well, I got out and shit really got away from me. No, he's still he's still telling the bullshit story. Uh, and so, yeah, it describes his DTs with the rodents and everything. Um, and but yeah, it just switches somewhere. So, yeah, the man who for the last three days has been not had been has been Tiny Ewell's roommate at St. Mel's Hospital's detox sits fucking with the air conditioner um so it's almost like a jump back here right right because because he's in the taxi and then it's almost like like a cross cut i don't know back 12 hours maybe or six hours to the guy staring at the air conditioner um, and there, there's some great imagery here. This, what is it, the smoke crawling down the wall or something. Um, his Rodney's tip. All right. So then we switch back. The big black rehab staffer placed Tiny in the taxi. And they're off to... Enfield and it, etc. Um, then we jump back to the uh, medical attache and all the people uh, looking not one bit distressed or in any way displeased, even though the room had smelled very bad indeed. Um, so, yeah, that's all we've got right here with Tiny Yule. Um, and again, because I'm obsessed and I still, I haven't read Hamlet in probably 10 years. It's probably good. Um, but I think that for probably not the first or last time, um, in this narrative, we could very safely say the time is out of joint, right? Because here we are in the taxi and then as if switching train tracks, we are, again, just a guess, but 12 hours prior with no explanation, no change, uh, you know, has had present test, tense, past tense. Um, so as is the case in much of this book, I would say there that the time is out of joint. Uh, <clears throat> Tiny Ewell says, so it would seem. Uh, there is a line in Hamlet where he says, nay, I know not seems. I believe it's right in the beginning um, where they see the ghost. And they and uh, 
Hamlet's boys say, it seems like your father or something like that. And I'm looking it up because, of course, I'm paraphrasing. He says, it seems like your father. And Hamlet says, nay, I know not seems. Um, seems? No, it wasn't. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Seems, madam, nay, it is. I know not seems. Hamlet acknowledges that his appearance completely denotes his inner feelings, and he would certainly not fake anything. Um, so that is, as he arrives at Claudius's court, dressed all in black. Okay, so that's to his mom. Yeah, why seems it so particular with thee? Seems, madam, nay, it is. I know not seems. Tis not alone my inky cloak, my black clothes, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration of forced breath, no nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected havior of the visage, together with all forms, moods, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. These indeed seem, for they are actions that a man might play, but I have that within which passeth show. These but the trappings and the suits of woe. So Hamlet says, what the fuck are you talking about the color of my clothes for? My dad just died. And you're saying, you know, it seems like you could change your clothes a little, Ham. You know, um, so. Be okay if we disagreed with that. Please. I Yes. So uh, I, I'm probably too obsessed with Hamlet. Don't combine it with this book and read too much into it or maybe do. But um that's my favorite passage in all of shakespeare actually and to me when he is talking about that what he's talking about is how gertrude his mother has dressed in you know funeral tie-dye and has <laughs> pretended to be sad and she's done all of these things that in that a man might play but what she doesn't have is that which passes show to be the trappings and the you know she's not, she's not the really rivers in the eyes and so when he when he gets into that seams uh thing to me that is the beginning of the moment where this uncertainty is introduced for hamlet where he is, is sort of first jarred out of uh being able to believe what what he is being told or experiencing Sure. Um, and yeah, I, and yes, thank you th uh, for bringing that up and for disagreeing with me or bringing up another point. Cause I don't even know what I believe, um, you know, but I do think it's interesting in that Hamlet part, he talks about the rivers of the eyes and Hal and Ma you know, ha uh, Mario asks Hal, why didn't the moms cry at the funeral? Um, and yes, um, that, you know, again, just something that reminded me of it. Oh, yes, this should not be rendered in exposition like this, but Mario has a severely limited recall. Um, I believe that I have posted this before. Uh, that's awful. Um, 
It is a poem by Carl Sandburg, and I'll just put the uh, link here. It's very, it, it, it's short, and it always reminds me of this when I'm reading it. They all want to play Hamlet. They have not exactly seen their fathers killed, nor their mothers in a frame-up to kill, nor an Ophelia dying with the dust gagging the heart. Not exactly the spinning circles of singing golden spiders. Not exactly this have they got at, nor the meaning of flowers. Oh, flowers, flowers slung by a dancing girl in the saddest play the inkfish Shakespeare ever wrote. Yet they all want to play Hamlet because it is sad, like all actors are sad. And to stand by an open grave with a joker's skull in the hand and then to say over slow and say over slow, wise, keen, beautiful words, masking a heart that's breaking, breaking. This is something that calls and it calls to their blood. They're acting when they talk about it and they know it is acting to be particular about it. And yet they all want to play Hamlet. Um, I love that poem and it really, it reminds me of parts of Infinite Jest. I don't read that and say, oh my God, it's just like Infinite Jest. But um, the spiders are in it. Uh, you know, there's, there's something there. And Carl Sandburg is absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's not a friend of mine. I'm not on the payroll, but, um, so yeah, so tiny says it would seem that he is sick, uh, or something. Um, all right. So now Marat and steeply 30 april year of the depend adult undergarment um so marat is there first right and then <laughs> steeply like a, a drag version of the walking dead or something comes i don't know hobbling up the mountain So I, I feel like probably for first readers of the book, these might be the most skipped sections of the book or the, certainly the, the most disliked sections. Is that accurate? Or how did you guys feel about these? And has it changed as you know, you've read it more than once? Uh, these are just words in succession on pages that I just had no ability to get engaged with. Uh, I tried. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think that's fair. To me, it was the opposite. This is one of the, from the first time I read the book, this is one of the sections that really stand out my favorite sections the conversations between these two characters and no the, the parts that i that i would skip would be descriptions about tennis or mario's puppet show but these conversations no and now that i've read the book other times after the first time um i love these conversations even more this is this is one of my favorite sections so finally this is the way it felt before 
connected to this meeting finally that was it that was it that was my feel that was my thought finally i want to talk about this i want to hear about this these conversations this is guy this is um i've said this before this is for me a good example of that moment when two people with different super different perspectives are talking and you can see you as a third party you can see both points it's like both are right there's never i don't know how you guys feel but there's never I never feel that, oh yeah, he is right and the other guy is wrong. No, no, not with these two. I think they're both super right. Like their points are so right on, even though they are opposing. Maybe. Huh. I mean, I huh. I, I I think it's I, I don't I won't even say vague. It's intentionally convoluted and confusing just exactly whose team each are on, right? I mean, and do either of, does anybody have a really, really good grasp? Well, I guess steeply is BSS, OSS, whatever. Um, but I think Marath's allegiance is certainly debatable. I think his ideological allegiance is clear and that's part of what makes his real alliance interesting. Yeah. Can you expound on that? Yeah. So, you know, for me, the scenes with Steeply, I am completely clear about what ideas Marath feels are representative of truth or representative of righteous living or even maybe representative of like fulfilling living and i do think that uh within that set of values i think that he is in good alignment with the afr and so i think ideologically i see a clear picture and then within that ideological clear picture we have this situation with his wife and we do have the fact that he's been compromised. So he's leveraged and he's got the wife situation. If he were to betray the AFR and his own ideals, it's not even just about the wife, perhaps because he's been leveraged by Steeply and the OSS. And so he's compromised in a bunch of different ways. Although I see this clear ideological line and I think that late in the novel, that bar conversation is particularly interesting because of exactly that that dynamic. And so, um, so here, for me, it's always interesting kind of thinking about him as somebody whose ideals I'm trying to figure out still, probably, um, and whose allegiance I'm, I'm very unclear about at least in this conversation. And so I'm thinking about this conversation as a way to explore who is Marath. And for me, and maybe I'm not giving Steeply enough credit, but I do sort of see Steeply as a bit of a, a, a bit of an intellectual straight man for Marath. Um, and that he's kind of got a simple straight role and Marath does a little bit more dazzle ideologically even yeah what do you guys think 
but before we open it up, Jack, do you think that Marath's wife is dead, alive, real, uh, made up? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think that this is one of those questions where I uh, I have a a solid answer that I believe, and then somebody could very easily say, "Well, what about this thing?" And sure, sure, I sure. Would go, uh, okay, I'll, I'll you know I was wrong about that. I misinterpreted that. Um, I believe that she is alive still. I think. Um, okay. Right, was where I end up landing on it, but I'm really uh, open about that. Yeah, yeah I, I she's don't. Vegetative. Yep, is, go ahead. Is all, but she's alive. Like she's just vegetative at this point. Right. So uh, yeah, I didn't get any. Like, I don't know, is there a reason to think that she's dead? They get a little weird about what a vegetative state is in the book, in terms of whether that's alive or not. And so right. I think that's what gives me doubt is you could pull up something and say, no, the vegetative thing is is not. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I think she would die without support. So I guess, yeah, you can probably split split hairs over mm -hmm. what, whether or not that constitutes a lie. But yeah. Or or does she exist? I mean, that that's the other part of it, too. We, we've got, you know, these ridiculous well, as they well, are they're spies. Why do you think she wouldn't i i guess i would turn that and say why would we believe that she is and i'm more playing devil's advocate um but Footnote 42, the thing of importance seems to be that Marat's AFR superiors believe he only is pretending to betray them in order to secure advanced U.S. cardiac prosthetic technology mm. for his wife, but that in fact he really is betraying them, the superiors in his country, probably actually for that medical tech and is thus only pretending only to pretend. Too much for me. Um, but what the cardiac prosthetic technology Sounds a lot like the uh, heart in a purse that PT steals, right? Right. I doubt they're one in the same, but um, interesting. Yeah, the question with him is like, you know, uh, for sure he's like, I, th I think for sure he's like a triple agent, but is he a quadruple agent? <laughs> it's like. Right. And this same language, at least, is used for John Wayne, right? They may have ultimately found out that his allegiances were even numbered or something like that. Um, all right. So, yeah, they're uh, chilling out here. <laughs> Stealth becomes you, he said. Go shit in your chapeau, steeply wheezed bringing up his legs um so the narrative here seems to be very obviously marat's mm. right marat yeah. watched a column of shadow spread again out east 
steeply got a hand under himself and rose. Um, and Marat is not flattering at all in his description of steeply. Steeply's gigantic prosthetic breasts pointed in wildly different directions now, one nearly at the empty sky. Um, once Moret had committed not just to pretend uh, to secure advanced needs, but in truth to do this, to betray now pretending only blah, 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 blah. All of this reminds me a little bit of Hal getting secretly high where, you know, me, th again, me think the lady doth protest too much. Like there's so much fucking pretending. And at some point, a triple agent is just a single agent, right? Right. So, so the only purpose of calling someone a triple agent is just to be fucking annoying and confusing. And a quadruple agent is just a double agent. A am I right there? I think so. I get mixed up on the math. I well, I think. I think you have to get to triple agent, but I think it falls apart at quadruple because triple agent would insinuate that the opposing party is privy to information about the other party when in reality they're feeding them false information. Yeah, I think there has to be, is, right? Am I, is this... Doesn't have to like go there, through like. I think there's like valuable. I'm like, you know. I. Yeah, I think the description of a triple agent is more than just being, you know, a double agent or, or an agent. Uh, but yeah, it does get asinine at quadruple agent, where it's like, okay, like. <laughs> because you're right. Yeah, you're right about where it's about. It's <laughs> like, about about like who your allegiance is to. But I guess there's like a. Yeah, dynamic. But at some uh, point, we can just cut out the middleman, right? I, I mean, at least yeah. in terms of my understanding, because my feeble mind will never understand a quadruple agent or at least not be able to see the difference between a quadruple agent and a double agent. Um, so... Again, this seems to be some masturbatory narrative by DFW, or just some some dicking around. I, I don't, I don't. It's funny, um, but I, I'm not going to lose any more sleep over it. Um, it I think I've got the sides all worked out. A, 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 side A is the AFR and side B is the OSS. BSS. BSS. Starts out in his A. He double crosses them to BSS. Then he's back to the AFR, but they think that he's betraying the OSS. And then he maybe goes back the fourth time. Sure. But then at the end of the book, I think he maybe even ends up a fifth 
out of the double, out of the quadruple cross, back into the AFR. You think? I, That's my I would have said it stopped at four. So calling Marath a quadruple agent is necessary to understand really or to see, to illustrate what he's doing. We can't call him just an agent. Yeah, he may. Maybe you didn't understand me, but um, oh, quadruple oh. agent means double agent to me. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. And, so and if okay. our head can okay, work that way, awesome. Yeah, my head just can't take the trip beyond that. But I think you're right. Um, and it, it's described that if anybody can pull off this arrangement, it probably is Marat, right? Because he may or may, may not have perfect recall. Um, now, here again, we see Marat sniffed slightly. Um, and he, he does this throughout this section where he sniffs, but he doesn't know why, or he pretends to stifle a sneeze, um, things like that. Now, if memory serves, Kate Gomper also sniffs, but doesn't know why. Um, I'm not suggesting that means anything except that it's there. Um, now... So, yes, deeply, luridly made up. How in God's name did you get up here? Murat slowly shrugged. Um, now, steeply. And the wife, he said, how's the wife doing? Holding her own weight. Thank you. His tone of voice betrayed nothing. And so thus, what is it your offices believe they wish to know? Um, so a bit of razzle-dazzle up northeast in your so-called ops area. Certainly you heard. So Marat's ops area is Boston, Massachusetts, USA, right? Andy sniffs again. Um, and his purse doesn't match his shoes. I hate that. Uh and Marat said, dazzle, as in a civilian type individual receives a certain item. Don't tell me this is news to you guys. Not on interlace pulse, this item arrives via normal physical mail. We're sure you heard, Ramey, a cartridge copy of a certain, let's call it the entertainment, as in the mail, without warning or motive, out of the blue. From somewhere blue? Uh, so obvious. So yeah, that was April 1st. This is April 30th. Um, a person with no political value to anybody except that the Saudi Ministry of Entertainment made one hell of a shrill stink. Um, so it, it kind of seems like almost, um, almost like Steepley's calling a Jiva convention violation here, right? Like, look, fucker, we're all terrorists, but you're giving us a bad name. Um, so, 
I, my opinion impression is, well, let me ask you guys, do you guys believe that one of these two is responsible for, or at least has knowledge of the entertainment being sent to the medical attache? Or do you think it was all Oren or some other option? Yeah, kind of in relation. I think they don't know. Huh. Go ahead. Okay, so Hime, you don't think either of these guys... It's responsible, and I think, yeah, okay. my theory is the Oren theory. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So I... Uh, kind, of in, kind of in relation to the last question of, like, the sniffing... Mm -hmm. um, I kind of like got hung up on that question while we were talking about this one where, it, it, you know, I was asking myself like, okay, is he smelling something? And then that kind of led me down to like, is he sniffing something out? And maybe this is like a wink, wink, hint, hint. Like he's, he probably doesn't have anything to do with it. Cause he's actually like trying to sniff something. Like it, it it's repeated many times in here. I, I didn't really yeah. pay attention to it. And so you guys brought it up. But now it's kind of making me think, okay, maybe it has something to do with that, like that idiom of just like to sure. sniff something out. Uh, maybe he's, he is innocent in that regard. Um, yeah. I, I think that is as likely an explanation as any I've come up with. Um. So does, so we think that, you know, these guys have heard about what happened, of course, but that they weren't responsible right. or even involved with the entertainment finding its way to Boston. Right. That's what I think. Okay. Um, so now Marat, uh, a person with no political value, blah, blah, blah. Marat says, ah, the medical attache, the specialist of digesting you refer to. Marat shrugged again in that maddening francophone way that can mean several things. Your office's wish to ask was the entertainment's cartridge disseminated through our mechanisms. Don't let's waste your finite time, a me old friend steeply said. The mischief happens to occur in Metro Boston. Postal codes route the package through the desert southwest, and we know your dissemination scheme's routing mechanism is proposed for somewhere between Phoenix and the border down here. Steeply had worked hard at feminizing his expressions. It would be a bit starry-eyed of OUS not to think of your distinguished cell. No. Uh, <laughs> Murat has a lot of pens in his pocket. Us, we don't have the information on even casualties from this blue dazzle you speak of. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly, and I, I had written down here, this, this conversation, this tete-a-tete -tete 
reminds me a little of a tennis match. Um, anybody else where, where it's going back and forth and you're like, okay, who, what? Um, and I do think, and I just thought of this, someone had asked me last time, you know, you keep reading this and still th see things. Yes. I believe at least in this iteration of Marat and Steeply, there are three sections. Um, there are three sets in a tennis match, at least the boys tennis matches, the pros play five sets. Um, but yeah, I thought that this is very clearly the two of them feeling each other out much like a boxing match or a tennis match. Um, neither one of them are really going to put their cards on the table right here before finding out what the other one knows. Um, and <clears throat> so, yeah, all the people, upwards of 20 people died, right? Out of commission, the attache, blah, 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 the police, um, but he appeared huge and bloated as a woman. Oh, this is fucking great. What a great and brutal line. Not merely unattractive, but inducing something like sexual despair. <laughs> so, so steeply is not only unattractive, but is actually inducing something like sexual despair. Um, and then so yeah saudi said to be close to minor members of the royal family marat sniffed hard as if congested of the nose like duplessis a puzzling he said but also a compatriot of yours canadian citizenship born in ottawa to arab emigres visa lists a residence in montreal um so the medical attache, I mean, what do you guys think? Is he coming under so much scrutiny here simply because he happened to be a victim of the entertainment? Or do, do you think that maybe he was on someone's radar before that? Yeah, I think he was on someone's radar before that. That's that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Um, Just the way they. Yeah. Services without specificity wishes to ask were there below the surface connections that make the individual not such a civilian unconnected to ask of us would the AFR wish to make of him the example. Um, we have neither digestive medicals nor diplomatic entourages on any lists for actions. That's not how we get down, right? You've personally seen our initial lists. Um, we have larger seafood to cook. Um, and Marat, for some reason, pretended again to sniff the nose. And so, yeah, the enormous hairballs. There's a part where they talk about the shadow. Yeah, Marat thought this as he opened and closed his upheld hand. 
making over the city Tucson a huge and black blossom open itself and close itself. So it's kind of like Batman here where the sun is rising behind them. So their shadow is spreading out over this valley and in fact over the whole city. Um, and yeah, so and follow up out of the Boston offices reports possible indications of the victim's prior in prior possible involvement with the widow of the auteur we both know was responsible for the entertainment in the first place. Prior. Um, so yeah, he had taught at Brandeis where, or yeah, they, he had done his residency there. She had taught there. Um, and <laughs> background checks indicated the wife was fucking just about everything with the pulse with the slight pause of which steeply could excel, particularly a Canadian pulse. Involvement of sexuality is what you were meaning then, not politics, um, which is interesting. So you're, you're saying, no, okay. So you're, you're saying this is a revenge killing for fucking, not revenge killing for the concavity or whatever. Um. All right, so then there, there's a great little cross cut here with parentheses. Marat sniffed, asked to verify by, by our mutual M. Tyne, how you call him, Rod A. God, and then parentheses. Rodney Tyne Sr., Chief of Unspecified Services, Acknowledged Architect, blah, 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 blah. Um, so again, going right from Marat's narration into this paragraph description of Rodney Tyne. And of course, Luria, Luria P. Um, and now Rodney Tyne is either doubling or tripling, but he's doing it because Luria is a great lay, right? Like, it seems to me that they are making a distinction between betraying your country for political motives or motives of love or lust or something like that. Um, all right, so that is about it there. Okay, so this part jumped out of me at the end here. Uh, he being steeply produced from his handbag sunglasses and put on the sunglasses, they were embellished with rhinestones and looked absurd. Rod the god. Uh, Marath forced himself to say nothing of their appearance. Steeply lit the damn cigarette. Okay. So then we're again cross cut into feral hamsters. 
try as I might to picture them, I can not picture them without goggles on. Um, anybody else? No, I, I, I do. I, I, I can picture their like intense face, but I still see goggles at least either up on their forehead or over their eyes. Um, that's probably a me thing. Uh, so yeah, bye-bye feral hamsters. Now it goes back to the heavy tongued English of steeply was even more difficult with the, uh, cigarette. Um, All right. So Marat believed that something in Steeply enjoyed his grotesque appearance. And also that I just right now asked you if you'd report it and that you said, bien, sir. Um, all right. So, yeah, we had just I, I had just read the description of Steeply's glasses with the rhinestones. Right. And that came directly from Marat. Now, after the description of the hamsters with or without goggles, um, it comes right back to Steeply's purse was small and glossy black, and the sunglasses he wore had womanly frames with small false jewels at the temples. Marat believed that something in Steeply enjoyed his grotesque appearance. Um, so I'd love to hear some ideas about the glasses, um, but more specifically the narrative. Like how the, the glasses were just described by Marat in, you know, perfectly descriptive ways. They're glasses with rhinestones on them. And now, after the paragraph about the hamsters, we have a less descriptive description of the sunglasses, um, which I think probably leads us to believe that Marat is no longer narrating or the time is out of joint again. I don't know. Um, what do you guys make of that? Uh, the only thing, and again, I, I really glossed over this chapter. Um, I still don't fully get it, but he's clearly got a, a bit of an absurdist, uh, philosophy on his appearance. And uh, the reason why I use that word specifically is because on page 12, um, Hal finds himself talking about Camus and Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. So he, he he opens like the book um, almost like I feel like he kind of primes us a little bit for to expect maybe a little bit of absurdism in the book. But I haven't sure. really gotten any farther in the thought than that. Okay. Um, yeah. And I am really curious to hear more about the narrative device of describing this item, Steeply's sunglasses, 
the first time it was uh, he produced from his handbag sunglasses and put on the sunglasses. They were embellished with rhinestones and looked absurd. Okay, then feral hamsters. And then Steepley's purse was small and glossy black. And the sunglasses he wore had womanly frames with small false jewels at the temples. Marat believed that something in Steeply enjoyed his grotesque appearance. So is this a different narrator? To me, it's the And same. if it's not a different narrator, hmm. why is Marat again describing the sunglasses that he just described, but in a more incomplete way? I don't know if it is uh, Marath describing them twice because uh, when the sunglasses are described for the first time, it talks about Steepy's like hesitance to like uh, pulling down severely his decolletage, which he was yep. trying to do. So that kind of makes it sound more like it's from Steepy's point of view. And then the second time it's Marath. Okay. All right. That could yeah that could certainly certainly be and maybe that's why marat doesn't know that it is rhinestones um he just knew that it was false jewels um all right mm. uh but what about it what about the following part he says he marat believed something and simply enjoyed his grotesque appearance doesn't that sound similar to the previous section so so therefore this the narrator is the same one making I, making simply look very ridiculous in other words it's very yeah i i agree with your point um but i but but i don't know as for a conclusion i don't know um mm -hmm. I, I was hoping you fuckers figured it out so i could we get some sleep tonight <laughs> Um, all right, so we can keep an eye on that because this is not the last we see of these two wascally wabbits. Um, and steeply now looked at him in probability behind the dark glasses. Uh, now, Marat's laugh had this misfortune to sound false and overhearty, whether or not sincere. Again, uh, the Kate Gompert section where the doctor doesn't know if she's laughing or in pain, right? Um, so echoes of that. Um, and there's another part where uh, Marat pretends to stifle a sneeze. Uh, well, you're already tripling. Um, where the fuck are we here? Okay, so, and abruptly, M. Duplessis is now passed away from life under circumstances of almost ridiculous suspicion, again with the false-sounding laugh, an inept burglary and grip indeed. Um, so, it, it's, again, like we said when it went down, not much of a stretch to think that this 
you know, Canadian VIP who gets tied to a chair and killed, not hard to think that there's probably something sinister going on. And obviously that's what they're trying to figure out, right? Um, me, I think that we go about our affairs in a more simple manner than your BSS office. If M, if M Tyne's betrayal were incomplete, we of Quebec would be aware because of Luria. Um, all right. So yeah, I think, you know, maybe the first set of, Murat and Steeply is there, and we have it kind of laid out a little bit as to what's going on. Um, and now we're in the locker room. What's going on in the locker room? Everybody's super tired. Is, it, is that yeah. the part? Yeah. Yeah, super, super stupid long day. AM drill, shower, eat, class, lab, class, class, eat, prescriptive grammar exam, lab class, conditioning run, PM drills, play challenge match, challenge match, upper body circuits and weight room, sauna, shower, slump to locker room floor with other players. So, so yeah, they're fucking exhausted laying around the floor or laying around the locker room complaining, right? Right. All right. And so, so anything else going on, you think? under the surface well i like that part i think it's after this section i don't remember where hal explains that the fact that everybody's feeling tired is done on purpose that yeah. it's 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 that i that feeling of yeah we all have the same enemy or something like that i don't know if i'm remembering that correctly but i like how he explains that yeah that we are all feeling tired and complaining about it in the locker room is not just because or it's not an accident. It's, it's intended to be that way so that it creates that togetherness. Right, right. That actually yeah. this is in the kids. this is a built-in part of our day is this time that they give us to sit here and bitch. Mm -hmm. Um. Now there is uh, Disney Leith. He's hard to pin down if you get him on entertainment qua entertainment. Um, remember himself's goal in life was to entertain. I think one of the things that would probably help us all out is if we figure out what that actually meant to himself. I certainly don't know. Um, and, uh, fuck what are you talking about? Oh, the, uh, yeah. Hal says hatred of the work is just part of the work. 
Um, so again, much like it says in the first part where it describes their day, it ends with slump to locker room floor with other players. You know, so it's like if it's describing a drill and it says, hey, you run to the the quarter line and you bend down and touch it and you come back here and you touch this and then you go there and you touch that and then you touch this end line and then you think you're going to throw up, you drink too much water and then you actually do throw up and then you sit down against the fence and that's how you do the drill. Um, so, yeah, this certainly does seem to be part of what's happening um part of the getting better is maybe bouncing it off your compatriots finding some sort of common ground with those people that you are suffering with um obviously to a much lesser extent but in the military that's what they do right they they build you down to nothing or they they tear you down to nothing and then build you up as they want you to be uh, it's funny, actually, in basketball, those drills are called suicides. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, for good reason. Um, all right, so cable TV, blah, blah, blah. Um, the um, Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, they start the inkster, etc. Halation. Halation, Raider says, a halo-shaped exposure pattern around light sources seen on chemical film at low speed. Um, and I believe that this technique of halation is used in the entertainment. I do know that it was something that himself used in a lot of films. And it is a phenomena that is discussed throughout the book. Um, when you look at someone and there's a glare and they get the halo shape, uh, the most angelic of distortions. Okay. Um, so we cross cut right back to Marat. And steeply. Um, oh, I sorry. I have a question about yeah. this before if I can. So about this section, do you think this part, the last part here, is Hal being bullied or I I don't. I think I think it's just leave him alone. So it's like, is he defending him because of the other others? are making fun of him. And I don't remember if it's I invented that part or maybe Hal talked about it in another section that he was, I don't know yeah. if bullied is the word or. Um, Hal says. I think like, this section is just kind of characterizing all of the kids a little bit deeper. And I think that definitely one of the things going on with the book and with uh, the Ennett House and Enfield is that it's kind of showing that if you are pursuing something, then inevitably the pursuit of that thing is going to bring on these certain challenges specifically in your life. And 
within this in particular, I, I feel like it's definitely a lot about John Wayne and setting up sort of the second piece of it. And so, you know, I don't know how much does John Wayne kind of stick out to you guys, but he does stick out a little bit to me as being a little bit different than some of the other kids. And I think that some of this is that context so that he can stick out a little bit. I I would agree. I don't think there's anything mean-spirited happening. Um, yeah, I, I, I would agree that it is just trying to give some character to these kids that so far are just names. Um. It definitely kind of uh, like uh, humanizes them or like the commonality of them sitting around like, come on, do a dictionary page. And then what uh, Stice and Pemulus are both like, you know, leave them alone, let them be, whatever. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it was like ill will. They're just like, come on, man, do a, do a dictionary page. But then they're like, leave them alone, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's cool. I, I like that scene. I felt like a, almost like a bonding where they get to take a break from all the ass busting drills and waking up early and bad weather conditions, whatever else. And they're just chilling, teasing each other or something. I don't know. I thought it, I thought it was a cool scene. I always liked that scene. I I agree. Um, so the, uh, so yeah, now we've got the big buddies, um, and, uh, besides Hal, who's atavistically dark complected anyway, the ones here with the least bad coloring are the players who can tolerate spraying, spraying themselves with lemon pledge. Um, atavistically, of pertaining to or characterized by atavism. Thanks. Reverting to or suggesting the characteristics of a remote ancestor or primitive type. Um, so... I think it's a euphemism for brown-skinned. Yes, yeah, but somewhere back in the uh, recesses of genetics. Yes. Um, so everybody's tired. Um, and yeah, describing tired in uh, as many ways as possible. I do love the line uh my daddy as a boy he'd have said tuckered out will do just fine whereas here we are sitting here needing whole new words and terms phrases and clauses and models and structures we need an inflation generative grammar generate this yes good um so, yeah, still busting balls here. Hal's next oldest brother, Mario, doesn't seem to resemble much of anyone they know. Yeah, there's the description of the family um, where his late father had been, as a young man, darkly tall, which is an interesting way to describe being tall, um, darkly tall, uh, black hair. 
himself had looked ethnic, but he isn't extant. Um, extant meaning like spread. I believe I looked this up and it was extant, still in existence, surviving. So the original manuscript is no longer extant. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. He's not alive. Hell is sleek, sort of radiantly dark, almost otterish, only slightly tall. So himself is darkly tall. Hal is slightly tall. Eyes blue, but darkly so. Himself is darkly tall. Hal has darkly blue eyes. Unburnable, even without sunscreen. Um, <clears throat> Hal's eldest brother, Oren, had got the mom's Anglo-Nordo-Canadian phenotype. The deep-socketed and lighter blue eyes the faultless posture and incredible flexibility. I didn't know that posture was genetic, but uh, maybe it is. Um, and then there's Mario. Uh, all right. So they're going through um, the big brother shit, uh, big buddy shit. Um, and... Um, so, yeah, Hal brings up the things is, you know, hey, we all know exactly where we are, but but we got to be buddies. How the fuck can I root for you in your match, knowing that if you win and I lose, you're going to be ranked higher than me? Um, which is an interesting idea or point about competitive sports. Um you know, in a zero sum game, if it could be your buddy that if he gets on a growth spurt or a progression spurt, he could be taking your spot. Okay. Um, any ideas about any of this here i mean this to me there, there's a lot a lot of words happening here that a lot of it seems to be just overly descriptive figuring out who's the asshole making him do all the work hal says no mm -hmm. it's that say something please that i thought was kind of interesting um mm -hmm. i never really thought of it until this section um I'm, I'm very much not a sports person. I'm a uh, performing arts person. But uh, I reading about tennis in this book makes me sort of think of it more as kind of a performing art because it's not a team sport. Uh, like, it's, you know, you're competing with each other for status. So it's more similar to something like, say, um, you know, music or dance or something like that. So uh, I, I capital I identified with all of the, uh, all of these sections about like the interpersonal dynamics with the tennis students. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly can take that trip for sure. Um, 
then we cross cut right back out to the desert, right? And so this introductory paragraph, the feminized American stood at a slight angle to Murat upon the out outcropping, stared out at the dark dusk shadow they were now inside, and as well the increasingly complicated twinkle of the USA city, Tucson, seeming slackly transfixed, steeply in the way vistas too large for the eye to contain transfixed persons in a kind of torpid spectation. This seems to me to be stage direction, um, like in a play, like a script or a film script. Um, that's what it seems to me. Uh, hey, this is where we are. This is what's happening. Uh, and they talk about the love, etc. except steeply fucks it up. Uh, and Marat has to correct Narcissus and Echo, Kierkegaard and Regina, Kafka and that poor girl afraid to go to the post box for the mail. Uh, Kierkegaard, Hal mentions Kierkegaard in the first chapter. Uh, Kierkegaard, I believe in his relationship or relation to Camus, um, but I know Kierkegaard is mentioned Um Marat came alert. Take off your wig and be shitting inside it, Hugh Steeply. <laughs> I'm going to say that tomorrow to somebody. Um, Menelaus was husband, him of Sparta, and you mean Paris. Helen in Paris, he of Troy. Um, and I made a note here of the Trojan horse, which is pretty interesting um, because, in a sense, the entertainment at least in terms of the medical attache, is a Trojan horse, right? Would yes. you elaborate on that? Sure. It ended up inside his house appearing to be a gift. And when he put it in the viewer, it turned out still to be a gift. Um, but it ultimately killed him to death. Hmm. I, I don't know if I quite see it as a Trojan horse, but I, I think hmm. it's there. I, I think uh, hmm. I saw it as a little bit more routine than that, but I, I definitely think that's there. Also related to your observation about the stage direction and, and Sasha's comment about uh, how she related to some of the sport talk as a performing arts person. I feel like there is some crossing that he's doing maybe with the knowledge of all of those things. Cause he's coming out of like writer, MFA, artsy Northeast type world, but he's got this background, Illinois, you know, regular all American tennis, this type thing. And I think he's maybe seeing probably the pursuit of some artistic pursuit or maybe even, you know, whatever you would call what, say, Joel is pursuing. I, I would probably say it's an artistic type life um, as similar to the tennis thing. So I think those two things kind of run in line, this the stage perception and, and her perception. Sure. Yeah, I think that is certainly all there. And again, this is all one chapter. Um, 
you know, which indicates that it probably is the same narrator. Um, you know, at some point I have to, when there are these quick cuts like this across the country, I have to think, or at least wonder if it's the Wraith. Um, because remember the Wraith describes how everything happens so quick and Wraiths can move all over the place. So maybe this is the Wraith or a Wraith bouncing between the locker room and the desert outcropping. Um, and yeah, somewhat, uh, we had mentioned the grotesqueries um, in steeply and the BSS as a whole. Um, and that was something that jumped out at me on a previous reading. And uh, I think it was Muhammad, uh, but it was a great point about the grotesqueries. Um, so the when I had first noticed that every time I see someone who fits into the description of a grotesquerie, I wonder, are they BSS? Are they a plant? Um, I mean, just off the top of your head, what or who are some grotesque characters or people in the book? Or Tony? Oh, there's a million. Throw a rock here. Okay. How about the Vought twins? Mm -hmm. They're they're pretty grotesque, right? Conjoined twins playing doubles tennis. Um, the blind tennis kid. I think we could call that grotesque. Mario. Uh, oh wow. Mario is certainly grotesquery. Um, oh, wow. I wouldn't have thought about him that way. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, he wears a police lock, wow. Hime. <laughs> I know, but I know. Yeah, I know. It makes sense. Yeah, and, and I was just fucking with you. But, um, but, but yeah, I, I think, you maybe. know, because we know that there are some planted operatives at ETA. Um it comes out later in the book that there's at least one instructor and two students who have already infiltrated ETA. And I think the obvious leap is to say, well, John Wayne is obviously a plant because he's Canadian. I think that's too fucking easy. Um, you know, looking at the way the people in the world of this novel operate, a Canadian whose father jumped out of the way of a train is the last person that's going to be sent to be undercover. And I could be dead wrong, of course, but that's what, what I think. Um, I think more along the lines of these grotesqueries, the, um, the students with beards in the wheelchairs that are on their way to the meet. Um, yep. So 
if no one else jumps to mind yet, keep an eye on that as we continue to read um, these grotesqueries and the fact that Marat has said this is their M.O. This is how they get down. You know, if if John Wayne were, were with the BSS, he would have had, I don't know, fuck USA, you know, shaved in the back of his head and he would have had a leg missing and a fake zit right here and, and one giant tit right in the middle, like Gately says. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would say keep an eye on that. Um, and we know from the filmography that himself has, that James has an obsession with John Wayne. Yes. Yes. And, and made a whole movie about John Wayne, people named John Wayne. Um, but he had to take this John Wayne out of the film because John Wayne's father didn't like the use of the word homo. I, b I believe that's how it went down. Um, so, yeah, okay, so moving right along. Okay, we're still back in the locker room. Hal is telling them. Okay, so this is where the, uh, this is just part of the thing. What does he say? Hatred of the work is just part of the work. Um, now, there is an interesting part in here um, where they talk about like why people are there or whatever. Um, and I think it's Kent Blot says, well, uh, they're all still here. Um, they want the show when they get out, meaning, you know, they want to make it in the show. Um, Oh, here it is. Then they stay and suffer to get a scholarship, a college ride, a white cardigan with a letter. Girl co-eds keen on Letterman. Kent, except for Wayne and Pemulus, not one guy in there needs any kind of scholarship. Pemulus will get a full ride anywhere he wants, just on test scores. Uh, Stice's aunts will send him anywhere, even if he doesn't want to play. And Wayne's headed for the show. Um, and so I kind of noticed this, this time, because when Pemulus is expelled, there's this, I don't know if it's contrived or fake or whatever, but there's this feeling of, oh, fuck, you know, what is Pemulus going to do now? He's fucked. He's going to have to go back to where he came from and man, he's fucked. Right. But but Hal says right here that Pemulus can get a full ride anywhere he wants just based upon his test scores. So how is does that really change just because he gets expelled? I don't know. Uh, all right. Kent Blot's father removes tumors from wealthy mucous membranes. There's a lot of fucking snot in this book, isn't there? 
Everybody, mucous membranes. Between that and all the sniffing in this last chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of adenoidal happenings. Um, they sure must love something, Ingersoll. But how about for a second, I say that's not Kent's point either. Um, so I, I think that these sections really go together, right? Yeah, uh, because you have Murat and Steepley talking about uh, Rodney Tyne and Luria P and the love that they share and Helen launching a thousand ships. And here's Hal saying the same thing. They must love something. But how about for a second? I say that's not his point either. Very much bitching also in the lavatories. Thank you, Indris. Um So, so yeah, that's that's kind of what we got here. Um, you know, a lot of locker room shit. I, I think maybe a little deeper conversation than I remember from my locker room days. Um, but there, me and my friends were not exactly uh, this cut of character either. Um, so there is that, um, now there is the part in here where someone is described again as all elbows or something else, which I had mentioned from the, the last time there was, uh, they said someone was all teeth and elbows. And in this chapter, there is that same kind of description, maybe with different body types. Um, I believe this time it was all feet and teeth. I, I oh. underlined it on page 98. Perfect. Yes. Uh, yeah, why don't you go ahead and read that part if you have it. Let's see. So is Zoltan... I'm not going to try and pronounce that name. Oh, just make it up. Zikdentmiahi <laughs> is 16, but speaks very little English. In Idris Arslanian, new this year, ethnically vague, 14, all feet and teeth, is a shadowy, lurking presence just outside the locker room door, poking the non caucasoid snout in occasionally and then withdrawing, terribly shy. Great. Yeah. Um, so again, interesting. And, and the repetition is interesting to me. Not that there's repetition in an 1100 page book, but that there's repetition within 10 pages of an 1100 page book. Um, and all right. So, yeah, they're playing. Uh, Pemulus is ripping his little buddies off, uh, playing three-card Monty. Ted, shocked, who's still sick, um, is teaching them about teeth and shit. Oh, and repetition, and that is super interesting um, because it's true. 
the point of repetition is there is no point. Wait until it soaks into the hardware and then see the way this frees up your head. Um, did everybody understand this part and, and what he's trying to say? Uh, I, um, I'm not a doctor. I never, I've never even looked at a medical school, but the way that neurotransmitters and neuropathways work is when you do something new, your brain doesn't know how to do it. All right. So think of it like a GPS or like a map and you want to go to the Starbucks, but you've never been to the Starbucks. So how you have to get there is by navigating places you've already been. So you say, I want to go to the Starbucks. It's over there, I know, but I've never been. Well, the grocery store is right here and the library is a little further. And then my house is here. So if I go to the grocery store, and then over here, and then to the library, and then I go to come home, I'm going to run into the Starbucks on the way. Okay, so every time you go to the Starbucks, that's how you go. Until you go to Starbucks enough that your brain says, hey, fuck stick, there's a better way to do this. And if we're going to be going to the Starbucks enough, then I, the brain, am going to build a road from the house to the Starbucks so that we don't have to go all of these places to get there. So the brain works the same way. That's why they say 10,000 hours of anything will make you an expert because your brain is building roads directly to those things. Um, so in, in sport, in tennis, what they're saying is when you first start playing, you say, you know, the guy serves and you say, a ball, I see it. It's over the net. It's going to bounce. Where the fuck is it going to hit? I'm just going to swing. Oh, all right. It was close. I probably need to take a step back. Um, so on and so forth until... A very long time later, someone, you know, hits the serve and you look up at the clock to see that you're winning and it's the third set and you're up 5-1 and you don't want to chase this ball down because you know that it's in. So you're just going to give up the point. And, and all of this happens without thinking. And then at some point, you know, the next serve. It's hit, and you don't do this whole, think of the first time you drove a car, right? And you're like, holy fuck, there's lights everywhere, and there's cars everywhere, and what do I do? And now, it's like, you know, you drive to the store, and then maybe you think about it, and you're like, fuck, I don't even remember that light turning green. Because you don't sit at a red light and just stare until it turns green and then say, okay, the light is green. I'm going to go. It all takes place subconsciously. And that is the goal here for the tennis. You practice and drill. Drill is not an accidental term. 
you do it so long that it is ingrained. And that's what they're talking about here. And, and again, back to this is water. This is where the difficulty of choice comes in because all of this basic, I say basic, um, to me, it's not basic. To them, it is extremely basic tennis. This is all expected, okay? At this point at ETA, it is fully expected that you know where to line up on the tennis court, that you know the rules of the game, that you can hit a serve every time, you know, without it going over the fence once. Um, does anybody hear golf? A little, yeah. I golf a little. I suck at it, but whatever. Um, but to me, like the difference is there are plenty of golfers who are not professional golfers that are 100% certain that when they stand up over the ball, they're going to hit the ball. Not so with me. I would say there's a 90% chance I'm going to hit the ball, but there are plenty of times I swing my ass off and, and the ball is right there. I fucking missed it. Long story short, that's what they're talking about here, that this is what you do. Through repetition, they sink and soak into the hardware, the CPS, the machine language, the autonomical part that makes you breathe and sweat. It's no accident. They say you eat, sleep, breathe tennis here. These are autonomical accretive means accumulating through sheer mindless repeated motions until you can do it without thinking about it. Play at like 14, give and take. They figure here, just do it. Forget about, is there a point? Of course, there's no point. Just fucking do it. Okay. So I, I think this could probably extend to this book, right? Just read. All right. So think about it until then repetition until then you might as well be machines. Here is their view. You're just going through the motions. All right. So that's what they do for so long. But then when that is hardwired into them, that's when real improvement can happen. Um, like if you play the guitar, first you got to learn all the chords, right? And then you can start to rock star out a little bit. But you don't learn how to solo before you learn how to play chords. Um, all right. Well, I hope I beat that one to death. And... Um, so now we're back to lines. Uh, yeah, and the farting and private water jug unpleasantness. Um, and is this the end? Yes, okay. So, um, as it ends, limits and rituals. It's almost time for communal dinner. Sometimes Mrs. Clark in the kitchen lets Mario ring a triangle with a steel ladle while she rolls back the dining room doors. They make the servers wear hairnets and little OBGYN-ish gloves. 
Hale could take out the plug and nip down into the tunnels, maybe not even all the way down into the pump room, be only 20 minutes late. He's thinking in an abstract, absent way about limits and rituals, listening to Blot give Beak his apergu. Like as in, is there a clear line, a quantifiable difference between need and just strong desire? He has to sit up to spit in the wastebasket. There is a twinge in a tooth on his mouth's left side. Um, so here, after we hear about Hal and his ritual and his secretly getting high, here he's already thinking about cutting corners. Uh, maybe not even go all the way to the pump room. Um, so re remember where he starts, it's okay, I'm going to go into the pump room and I'm going to smoke one hitters so that I blow out the teeniest, tiniest amount of smoke and it's gone and no one can smell it. And I am Johnny fucking smooth, high as a kite, but nobody knows except everyone knows. Well, now he's saying, maybe I don't even have to go to the pump room. Okay. Which is a, a, a clever way of saying maybe I'm just going to smoke a bowl out in the hallway. <laughs> um, it, and it, it's one of those things. And, and I think we probably all can identify it in ourselves or others. We all have, or try to have very rigid standards for ourselves. And the hardest time to break that is the first, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe you say, I don't drink on Tuesdays because I'm not an alcoholic, so I don't drink on Tuesdays. And maybe that first Tuesday that your buddy says, hey, come on, man, the Monday night football game got postponed. It's on Tuesday. You got to come out. We got That's what we do. We go out and watch football and drink on Monday, but it's not Monday. It's Tuesday and I don't drink on Tuesday, but you're right, man. I had a shit day and it was a long weekend. I, I will. I'll go out with you today, even though it's Tuesday and I'm going to have a beer with you. That's it. And I'm going to be home by nine. Well, you get home at four in the morning and fuck up your nice shoes because your wife locked you out or whatever. Um, but then next Tuesday, it's real easy. Next Tuesday, it's not nearly as hard when your buddy calls and says, hey, man, you want to go grab some drinks? Well, it's Tuesday. I don't drink on Tuesdays. Fuck, I drank last Tuesday. Yeah, 7.30, good. Um, so here, I think you see Hal maybe starting to... I don't know, question his limits or maybe just see that they're not limits at all. Um, so that was our assigned reading. Um, any takeaways from either this section or what we've covered so far? You know, we're fuck a hundred and something pages in um, anything that you guys see on the whole. Uh, just a little callback. I uh, checked out Enfield, Massachusetts mm -hmm. and it was a real place. Um, 
that got turned into a reservoir uh, okay. in like 1940. Um, Did they shave and, a yeah. hill to make a reservoir? Maybe <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, um, but I tried like kind of looking at. It. They mentioned on the, on the Wikipedia page that uh, uh, Dave, you know, Foster Wallace was. Uh, he confirmed that that's where he took the name from, but it's kind of like you know, actor playing actor. You know what I mean? Like sure, in the credits, sure. where it's like not actually me, but I'm playing a person the same name as me, sort of thing. So yeah. Yep. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that I've noticed is the repetition. Um, yes, the ones we've mentioned, where it's the repeating words and things, but also the themes. You know, again, here we are, a hundred and something pages in, and we have Kate Gomper, who is sniffing like Marat. Marath, whatever the fuck it is. Um, we have Erdetti and Kate Gomper talking about throwing out all their paraphernalia, telling their dealer to go screw, and that if they ever ask for anything again, to tell them not, you know, um, you know, so they're doing the same exact thing. Um, and there was another one that I had. But, but just this repetition of things. Oh, uh, Kate Gomper um, talking about the anhedonia, uh, using very similar words, terms, and phrases as Oren uses. Um, so, so I really think thus far... We really have a lot of variations on a theme, right? Like almost everybody discussing something different, but in the same way. Yeah, and how and how we can see that in these different sections or in the different characters, the the driver with different names is the same. They call it love or intense desire or the need or addiction. I don't think that was a word addiction obsession so it's the same thing right the driver why we play the game why we get high why we watch the entertainment over and over it's the same thing and, and, and probably and it's interesting how they, go, yeah. go ahead oh no no just they that he uses different words but it's the same thing he calls it love or yeah, addiction, desire. Right, and it's all futile, right? Because in the end, we're all going to die. It might be with our pants pissed watching the entertainment. It might be on the business end of a train. Um, mm. It might be in Molly Notkin's bathroom. Um, but in the end, we're all going to die. But, Right. But what matters is that we get to play. Right. The chance. So who killed himself? Avril. Avril. Well, then why was the microwave on the counter? 
Himself is tall. Avril is taller than tall. Why would either of them put the microwave on the counter for himself to stick his head in it? Hmm. To make and it look like the, somebody else. <laughs> and why is the okay. cartridge in JRY's head if supposedly stuck his head in, in a microwave and then made his head explode? Like, why would you put it? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think. I don't think the cartridge is in there. But, um, yeah. And y'all remember the bottle of old grand or uh, not old granddad wild turkey, turkey. right? Mm -hmm. With yeah, the with ribbon. With the ribbon. And do you remember where the ribbon came from? No. I believe that the wild turkey was a gift from Joel which would explain why it would have a bow on it, right? And... Okay. Uh, um, I don't remember that, but didn't didn't James tell her that he was not drinking anymore by yeah. then? When, I, don't uh, I thought the uh, wild turkey was a gift from April. Yes. That's what I thought, too. Okay. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. It was gift in any case. Uh, now, take a look at the link that I just put in the chat. And does that look like a bow? Yeah. <laughs> the, red, the red part... Of it the does. Southwest Black Widow spider, huh. really does look like a bow or a ribbon. Um, just something I came across and thought it was interesting. Um, but yeah, I just, as a tall person, if I were engineering my suicide and I decided that a microwave oven was the way to do it. I probably put the microwave up here so that I could stand up here and in my last moment of breath and consciousness, not be trying to figure out how the fuck, you know, um, however, yeah, it's not very dignified bending down like that. No, no, nor possible or probable. Um, who would have to use a counter? to kill someone with a microwave right someone on a wheelchair you're saying someone in a wheelchair oh in a wheelchair right that's right that's what you're saying yeah because if you're in a wheelchair you can't get out of the wheelchair right. um yeah just something to think about I certainly don't know. I go back and forth on this, but I don't think yeah. that he killed himself. Um, mm. Simply, again, all right, Erica. Ah, uh, there you go. Um, there, like, <laughs> himself is a goddamn genius. I don't think there's any disputing that. Um, he's invented everything 
and you know it's like it's like the smartest man in the world deciding to commit suicide by sticking his head in a toilet and slamming the toilet seat on his head until he gets knocked unconscious and his face falls in and he drowns probably not um so The first time I read it, I took it as such, oh, wow, what a weird way to kill yourself and stuff. But then, you know, after you read the book, you're like, you know, just kind of for a few weeks after you just kind of sit with it, absorb everything, you're going over everything in your mind. And I'm like, it's the AFR it had, or, you know, or somebody else had a hand in this or I don't know. I, I couldn't. I never could, I guess. Um, that's what I'm looking for. I don't know. I, I couldn't just take it at, at face value. I'm like, did he kill himself? Was it, I don't know. It just didn't quite add up or make sense or I couldn't. I agree. And, you know, maybe this will be the time that we crack it. We find something in the text. Oh boy, we're fucking idiots. But, um, you know, that's one of the things to keep an eye out for. Cause I, I mean, that's one of the big mysteries in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you guys heard of the term MacGuffin? It's 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 like a film word. Sasha, Jack, will you go ahead and tell us what a MacGuffin is? I mean, would it be appropriate to say that it's kind of like a red herring? Kind I mean, of. Not quite like a red herring, but it's just like a device used to advance the plot forward. Yeah. And so the device, whatever this thing is, this MacGuffin, uh, I think it goes back to Hitchcock is maybe who coined the term. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and probably one that a lot of people know is the Pulp Fiction suitcase. You know, we don't know what's in that briefcase that glows. We just know those two hitmen are after it. And then, you know, the other guy's trying to get it. And that's the yep. MacGuffin. It's just moving things along. Right. So it's like a red herring in that, it's something big that does move the plot along, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter at all. Um, An example, um, Psycho, the Hitchcock movie. If you remember, the movie starts with uh, a car sinking in a pond or something with a billion dollars in the trunk, which is what gets everything going. But in at the end of the movie, all you remember is, you know, no one cares, remembers, and nothing happens with the the money. Um, so another thing that I, I think we should be on the lookout for here are MacGuffins. Um, what is a MacGuffin and what's not? Is the DMZ a MacGuffin? Um, I don't know is Hal's madness a MacGuffin is himself suicide uh there there are a lot of things out here that are certainly planted as like hey you know do not look beyond this because this is gonna be super fucking important and then well it's really not so all right guys thank you so much I've I've kept you too long. Um, you you all look great. You look like you're ready for a couple more hours. I need a nap so badly. Um, but 
another day. Yeah. Thank you guys. Um, I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving or whatever you call it, where you're from. Um, And we will see you here again shortly. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you.